the passage tonight in two chunks and uh, just four verses to begin with. We're going to read from Acts chapter 8. And if you've got one of these red Bibles, you can find that on page 1101. On page 1101, it's Acts chapter 8. That's page 1101. I'm going to read from the first heading there in chapter 8. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them into prison. Those who'd been scattered preached the word wherever they went. We'll read more in a minute. So the church is scattered by this persecution. It's scattered into Judea and Samaria. Now, the observant among you might be wondering... Just who is Saul dragging off to prison in verse 3? If, if everyone apart from the apostles is scattered in verse 1. Well, well, who is Paul dragging off to prison? Did anyone spot that? I think what we have here is a summary. Verse 1 is a summary of what's happened. Persecution broke out and, and the church was scattered. And then the next three verses are some detail explaining what's behind this summary. Perhaps uh, after Stephen died, people hoped there would be an end to this new persecution of the church. Perhaps they hoped that would put a finish to it. Maybe they thought Stephen had just been too provocative. And although it was terrible that he had died, maybe, maybe things would settle down. Perhaps that's what they were hoping. So some, some godly men from the church buried him and mourned for him. But maybe they didn't realize that things had fundamentally changed and Saul begins his assault on the church. He goes from house to house finding people to drag off. And is that, is that perhaps what drives people to scatter? So verse 1 is kind of the summary. The death of Stephen is what sets all of this in motion. And then 2 to 4, describe a bit more about what happened. But I want to know, did you capture where they were scattered to? Where they were scattered to? It says in verse 1, they were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Oh, does that ring any bells, Judea and Samaria? should ring some bells. So pop your finger in where we are. And let's flip back a little bit to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It's just a few pages back. Now, this is Jesus giving his final instructions to the disciples. And here's what he says. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Do you get that? In Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. So what have we got going on here when the disciples are scattered to Judea and Samaria? What we've got going on is, is step two. Step two in Jesus' plan to reach everyone, everywhere. It's exactly what they should have been expecting as the church, isn't it? It's exactly what they should have been expecting. Everything's going to plan. The gospel's advancing from Jerusalem. Now it's going to Judea and Samaria. Next it's going to go to the ends of the earth. But they must have been hard to believe at that moment that this really was the plan, don't you think? 
Perhaps they'd already been making plans in their, in their disciple meetings. Perhaps they got together and they had already been thinking, Jesus has given us this three-stage mission. We should be thinking about our plans for stage two. Perhaps they'd been conducting some reconnaissance. Perhaps they'd been training people up, ready to think about how they were going to accomplish Jesus' second step. But if they'd been making the plans, I, I really don't think they would have included, let's see one of our key leaders killed in Jerusalem. I don't think that would have put that in the plan, do you? I don't think they would have put in, let's find an enemy who despises us so much, he will hunt for us from house to house and scatter us. I don't think they would have put that in. But it's God's plan going ahead. God works in sometimes very mysterious ways, doesn't he? Perhaps often. Ways that are hard to fathom. God works through things that it's, it's hard to believe that God could be working through this, really, isn't it? One of the key followers has died. Is the plan working or has it gone wrong? But God's plans will succeed. He does work through this. So the church is scattered outside of Jerusalem for the first time. And this is just what God planned. We're into stage two. And I want us to explore three stories from this next section of Acts. And I think each story has something different to show us. We're going to take them in the opposite order to how they appear in the text. There is a reason, but that's for me to know and you to find out. Don't you love a bit of drama in an evening? But now I think about it, three doesn't seem like quite enough stories, really, does it, for one evening? So why don't we make it four? We'll make it four. We've got time. You're not doing anything? I'm not doing anything. Let's make it four stories. We've we got an extra background story we can add in here to set the scene. So going to begin with the background story. And that starts about a thousand years before where we are here. It's the story of these Samaritans. The church is scattered to the people of Samaria. We have to have a bit of an idea about exactly who these people are to make sense of some of the things in the text. So, lightning history lesson. Let's get into story number one. Just who are these Samaritans? Why, why do Jews not associate with Samaritans? Like John 4, 9 tells us, how do these Samaritans relate to Jewish people? Why, why is there a good one? A good Samaritan, one of Jesus' most famous parables. Why would these Samaritans be the next step? in Jesus' plan to reach the entire world. Well, about a thousand years before our text tonight, the kingdom of Israel was broken into two parts under two rival kings. And sometimes these two parts got on pretty well. There there, there are alliances between them. There's um, treaties, marriages, weddings between them. But sometimes they're, they're hostile. They're at each other's throats. A thousand years ago, the nation is split into... The north and the south, okay. But then 700 years before our text, things get a lot worse. 700 years before our text, the the Assyrian Empire sweeps down from the north and destroys this northern kingdom entirely. It takes it out. They come in and they they massacre it. What they do is um, they're, they're practicing kind of kingdom destruction, nation destruction techniques. So they come in, they conquer, they defeat all the armies, they beat the cities, and they, they take the people who are there and they throw them all around the Assyrian Empire. And they take people from all over the Assyrian Empire and they drag them in and repopulate that land. So now there's not even a nation to rise up and rebel left. There's nothing left. The people have been destroyed this massive mixed bag of people drawn from around the Assyrian empire that's who the Samaritans are descended from that's who they're descended from 
the Jews would have looked at them as, as a mongrel kingdom. There was, there was some of the Jewish heritage there. There was some of the Jewish teaching and instruction and knowledge. Some Jews obviously hadn't been removed by the Assyrians. They didn't completely empty the land. But at the same time, there's all these other people from an entire empire with all their religions and beliefs all mixed into a jumbled pot of everything. And then it gets worse still. 400 years before our text, these guys in the north with their mishmash of religion, they build their own temple in competition to the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. A final decisive break between the two halves. Now, about a thousand years of hostility, okay? That's, that's what Jews and Samaritans are to each other. Have you ever had bad neighbors? You ever had bad neighbors? Uh, we, had, we had bad neighbors once. And it's terrible. It's terrible because they're, firstly, they're, they're bad. They're really unpleasant. You don't want them in the face. But the other thing is they're, they're your neighbors. They're right next door all the time, rubbing your nose in it. It's like, oh. Well, imagine having bad neighbors for a thousand years. You can see kind of why the Jews and the Samaritans didn't get on. But there's one more thing you should know about the Samaritans. Well, there was huge divisions. There still is shared ground. There still is common ground. There's quite a lot of common ground, actually. Perhaps you'll remember the story of Jesus cleansing 10 lepers and only one of them came back to say thank you. Only one of them came back. Do you know the one that came back was a Samaritan? And do you know what he came back and did? Luke 17, 16 says he came back praising God. The, the one true God, the same God. The, the Samaritans worshipped the same God. They shared the same first five books of the Jewish Bible. They, they held on to those. Like the Jews, they were, they were expecting a Messiah to come, just like Moses had told them in those first five books. So they share something. They've got something in common. But they're also very different, very mixed up. Probably best to see them as being kind of on the fringes of Judaism. Like uh, if you imagine politics today, politics today, they're probably sort of like a UKIP. They're like <clears throat> almost a political party, perhaps, maybe. They're not monster raving loony. They're mo- not monster raving loony, but they're not really mainstream either. They're quite, quite fringy. Okay, so that's kind of where they are. Background out of the way. Back to the text and the beginnings of the church. What happens when these scattered first Jewish Christians arrive in Samaria when they cross that bad neighbor division. What's going to happen? We're going to read from verses 5 to 25. So you find that again, it says 1101. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now for some time, uh, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is the divine power known as the great power. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. 
When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They'd simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you. Because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money? You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me that nothing you have said may happen to me. When they testified and proclaimed the word of the Lord, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Four stories, one down already, only three to go. We're going to focus on the apostles' story next and do things a little bit backwards. Now, the apostles, okay, they've been left behind in Jerusalem as the church is scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, but they've got word somehow that something is going down in Samaria. Samaria's accepted the word of God. So Peter and John are sent on a mission, probably a secret mission. Sounds exciting. But what are they trying to do on their secret mission? Has, has Philip got it wrong somehow in reaching out to the Samaritans? Are they coming to shut things down? This shouldn't be going on down here with these Samaritan mixed up people. There shouldn't be a church here, Philip. Or, or has, has Philip maybe gone off message? Has he been teaching in error and they've got to sort out some bad teaching? Or, or did he get the baptism wrong? Maybe he used milk instead of water or something peculiar like that. And they need to fix it. <clears throat> None of these, so it seems. There's no top-up teaching, as far as we can see. There's no, there's no redirecting Philip, is there? There's no saying, you got it wrong, mate. There's no watery stuff going on. They're there so these new believers can receive the Holy Spirit. Can you see that in verse 16? The Holy Spirit had not yet come. Simply been baptized. They're here so they can receive the Holy Spirit. Now, if you are theologically wired, and I hope some of you are, this should give you apoplexy. You see, here's the thing. It's normally a bit of a package deal. Flip back with me again. To Peter's speech on the day of Pentecost. We're going back in Acts. Acts 2.38. Okay, again, just a few pages back. Acts 2.38. What does Peter say on this very first day of Pentecost? How does he explain what's going on? He says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent, be baptized, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. What have we got here? Here we've got believers, right? Not just believers. Uh, in 8.15, they're called believers. They're baptized believers. They've been baptized. What's wrong? Believers, baptized believers, no Holy Spirit. What gives? Are they, are they missing some teaching? 
um, so they can't believe right? Well, the apostles don't teach anything, do they? Uh, are they not baptized right? Well, the apostles don't come around and double dip. So what's going on? There are two ways to read this text. Two ways. One is to read this as a normative text. We can read this describing what is normal, um, what should happen, what always happens. The other way we can read this text is as a, a narrative text. That is, it's just telling the story of what happened here, this one time. And people, people take this text and they read it in those two different ways. Let me, let me give you some examples. So the, the Catholic Church... In its official doctrine, they take this text as a normative text. They take it to describe something that is normal. They use this as the basis for their right of confirmation. They teach that a bishop, who they see as in line, direct line from the apostles, they say a bishop has to lay hands on a Christian and then the Christian receives the Holy Spirit. It's quite separate from conversion. It's kind of like a, a, a stage two confirmation. Their, their catechism their kind of teaching document that explains things to people. It says, it says it like this. It says, The effect of the sacrament of confirmation is the special outpouring of the Holy Spirit as once granted to the apostles on the day of Pentecost. Short story, no confirmation, no Holy Spirit. They use this passage as a proof text. And this is not a new understanding. This dates back to Cyprian in the third century. So there's one way of reading this as a normative passage. This is the way it always works, okay? Another way of reading this as a normative passage, a passage describing how this always works, is the way some branches of the Pentecostal church will read this. They'll take this as normal, but in a different way. They'll say this describes a second blessing, a kind of second stage in your Christian growth, which is normal for Christians to seek. They'll say, uh, the Assemblies of God, for example, they, they call this baptism in the Holy Spirit. And their, their statement of fundamental truth says, it's something all believers should ardently expect, earnestly seek, and it's distinct from, subsequent to, the experience of the new birth. You receive the Holy Spirit, especially in Paralator, and that this passage is giving us an example of this kind of normal way that things develop, okay? Two ways of reading it as normal, as normative. But I want to argue tonight that this isn't normative, this is narrative. It's just telling the story of what happened here, just this one time. It's not telling us what's normal or what we should expect. Hang in there, this isn't going to take that long, and we will get back to the plot. But let me give you two reasons why this is not a normative text, okay? First, what it describes isn't normal. Not now, not then. It's not even normal in Acts. It's not what happens all the time for everyone, everywhere. It's not normal in at least two key ways. Like I already said, Acts 2.38, where Peter is for the first time explaining how things work, represents the Holy Spirit as a part of this package deal of conversion, a part of what happens in that repent, be baptized, believe, receive. It's all one package, remember? If anything's normal in Acts, that's what's normal, not this kind of two-stage exception we're seeing here. Romans 8.9 talks about this too. It says, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. Being a Christian's inextricably connected with having the Spirit, and that's what's normal. It's also not normal to need this laying on our hands to receive the Holy Spirit. It, it wasn't even mentioned on the day of Pentecost, on that first fundamental breakout of this new church. 
And if we cheekily jump ahead to a couple of the upcoming conversions, um, even in this chapter, in chapter 8, in chapter 9, in chapter 10, we'll see people receiving the Holy Spirit without any hands required. So, firstly, this is not a normative text because it's not normal. This isn't what happens every time. And we can claim otherwise. But secondly, it's not normal because, because this is such an exceptional moment in the advance of the gospel. Exceptions, by definition, exceptions are not normal, right? That's what an exception is. Some of you are still reeling from the historical goo about who these Samaritans are, right? And what happened up north and how come who's all messed up. But <clears throat> it's really important that you know that because what we're seeing here is we're seeing the gospel cross a giant boundary. We're seeing it cross into this Samaritan people group who were really questionable as far as the Jews were concerned. We're watching something huge happen, a giant leap forward. It's a key step. It's one of Jesus' three phases in getting the gospel to the whole world. And as we'll see later on when we get to the next phase, when we get to the gospel going all the way to the ends of the earth, we'll see another exception there to how these things happen. What we have here when the Samaritans receive the gospel is an unprecedented situation. And an unprecedented situation gets you an unprecedented practice. That's what's going on. So an exception. Can you imagine how big a deal it would be for these Jewish Christians in Jerusalem to suddenly discover that there were Samaritan Christians as well? Can you imagine the potential there is for this to create an immediate division in the church for there to be two sides to the church who are always seeing themselves as separate based on their heritage back up the tree. There's a real danger for division. So how important is it that there are no questions at all over the reality, over the sincerity of these Samaritan Christians' faith? It's essential. When the first Gentile Christians will receive the gospel... Peter, the same Peter who came down here to pray, this Peter sees the Gentiles' experience of the Holy Spirit as confirmation, guaranteeing the genuineness of their, confirm, of their, of their faith, guaranteeing, yes, the gospel really does stretch this wide. Same thing here, okay? It's really important, essential that there's confirmation this is genuine, this is real faith, that this is the church and the gospel expanding across a huge division. So, it's narrative. It's an exception that it's describing. It's an exception, a critical step forward. And if you're a Christian here tonight, if you believe, you have the Holy Spirit. And don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Ah, <sighs> you survived. Okay, give yourselves a pat on the back. <clears throat> really, you can. It's okay. Give yourselves a pat on the back. You made it through. <sighs> There'll be a short test after the service to check up on the details there. Just kidding. Four stories I said, and we've only got through two. Ah. The third one, Simon's story. Remember Simon? Simon the sorcerer's story. Oh, alliteration. Got to be onto something here. This is definitely going to work. The great power, they called him in Acts 8, chapter 10, right? He amazed all the people of Samaria, verse 9 tells us. Everyone was giving him attention. Everyone bigs him up. Verse 11 tells us it's been that way for a long time. He's a powerful, important, influential, famous guy. Now imagine going from running a monopoly one day 
to living with competition the next, okay? Imagine Simon wakes up one day to find there's a new guy in town in the signs and wonders business. Ah, Simon already had that covered, thank you very much. Don't need anyone else. Though obviously he didn't have it that well covered if Philip can show up and have room to do all these signs and wonders, right? For Simon, the sorcerer, this story is all about who gets the spotlight. Who has people's attention? It's about power and influence. It's like the, the classic celeb sob story. It's been him for a long time, but suddenly some Jewish guy, Philip, shows up, and now Philip's working the crowds really effectively. He's obviously got the right haircut or, or the right tattoo. Maybe he wears Hollister. And that's how he's commanding the control. But Philip isn't getting their attention. Look at verse 6. They're paying close attention to Philip. Philip's winning. Simon had this head start, right? He's been famous for a long time. He's amazed everyone for a long time. And Philip's zooming up behind and overtaken. Simon is already en route to having some bit part in a I'm a celebrity, please watch me show on channel 265 for a fading ex-celebs. He's getting a bit desperate. He's probably going to need a new goatee soon. It's the only way he's going to go forward. So why, why is Philip winning? They both do signs, right? One's a sorcerer, one's doing uh, amazing other signs. Is Philip just doing better signs, bigger signs? Are they just more amazing and impressive? There's a bit more sparkle in his signs. Do you think that's what it is? It's not just that Philip has better signs, although it seems like he probably did. Did you notice in verse 13 what Simon says? He followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles they saw. They're great signs. But it's not just better signs. It's about what the signs point to. It's about what they point to. What is Simon, this sorcerer, pointing to with all his sorcery, with all his signs? What does he, what does he point to with it? Verse 9 tells us. He boasted that he was someone great. What, what's he pointing to? They called him the great power of God. What are his signs all about? What's the show about for Simon? The show is about him. The show is about him, about who he is, about his reputation. But signs. See, it's right there in the word signs. Signs aren't the thing themselves. Signs point to something else, don't they? I mean, imagine, imagine there's a Z-Ben sign and all the Z-Bens that exist are just the ones on the sign. And, you know, the signs point to something else. They point to something out there. And Simon's signs, they all point back to him. But Philip's on a completely different mission. What does he point to? Look at verse 5. What does he start by proclaiming? He proclaims the Christ there. That is the, the Messiah, the, the long-expected deliverer, which these Samaritans were waiting for and expecting. He's proclaiming, pointing to something else. Look at verse 12. What's he preaching? He preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus. Philip's winning because he's got something better to point to. He's got something more convincing, more compelling, more significant. He's got a better message. It's called, it's called good news for a reason, you know. It's actually, it's actually good news. Simon's losing the competition, and it looks like he settles for shadowing Philip, right? He believes, and he gets baptized, and then in verse 13, he follows Philip everywhere. Why is he following Philip everywhere, do you think? 
So trying to watch the hand movements and see if you can get the right, you know, twiddle of the fingers or the right kind of acha, which is required to me. Is that what he's doing? Is that why he follows him everywhere? Learn some new tricks. Then notice what happens when the apostles show up in Simon's story. He's like, oh, the big boys are here now. The big boys with the real magic hands are here. And he's, uh, he's chasing them. Instead, I think he sees another way to get ahead. I think he's lost his influence and he wants it back. Uh, can you see what Simon tries to buy in verse 19? What, what is it he wants in verse 19? He says, give me this ability so that I can lay my hands on people. And they might receive the Holy Spirit. He wants the, the power to give the Spirit. Notice he doesn't want the Spirit itself. Not on the Spirit itself. He wants the power to give it to other people. He's not looking for power to proclaim, is he? Like we've been talking about the role of the Holy Spirit. He's not talking about power for mission or power to point to Messiah. That's not what he's looking at. It's not even clear he received the Spirit at all himself before he goes to ask him for the magic hands, is it? I think all he's really looking for is power to point to himself again. He wants a, wants a new trick for his bag says you can't teach an old dog new tricks. And this looks like a good one. Perhaps one that will get him back on top. It should make us ask some questions about what really happened when verse 13 tells us Simon himself believed and was baptized. Well, what really happened there? Did he ever really become a Christian? Did he really follow Philip's signs to what they pointed to? What exactly was it he believed? Look at, look at Peter's insight into him. In verse 23, what does Peter say? He says, I see you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Now, captive to sin does not sound very much like being a Christian. Not at all like being a Christian. Christians, as Paul explains in Romans 6, 6, we are no longer captive to sin that that mastery over us is broken, that we're finally free. Simon's still captive. Notice back in verse 12, the, the other Samaritans, well, they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus. We know what they believed. They believed Philip as he preached those things. But what did Simon the sorcerer believe? Maybe, maybe he just believed Philip could do great signs. Maybe that's what he believed. And the end, it gets even worse, right? What does Peter hit back with? He says, may your money perish with you. Simon's on a route to perishing, not a route to salvation. He needs to repent, Peter says. He needs to turn around to pray. Does he repent? Or is he really just still about his own power and influence at the end of the day? See, his story finishes with a question mark, doesn't it? Peter says, you need to pray. What does he say? He says, would you pray for me? And that's where it ends. What about you? Would, would you like to be someone famous? I don't know. Do we have anyone here who wants to be famous? Would you like to be somebody powerful? I bet we've got more people here who want to be powerful. Would you like to be someone influential? Well known. I think that's what a lot of people in this world are after. 
I think you see that in our celebrity culture, right? So many people chasing after their five minutes on TV. I think that's what a lot of people build their lives around. I think that's what a lot of people have set up as their goal, as their mission. Perhaps that's what draws some people into the showier ends of the church. I mean, speaking as an observer, that appears to be what drives some of the better-known names who fly around the world in their private jets to dispense signs and wonders, becoming great, right? Becoming well-known, becoming influential, being known as the great power, perhaps. Is that what they're after? I think we see in this text a caution about seeking signs and the power of the Spirit. And that caution is, what is your motivation why do you seek this power? Is it for, for ourselves? Is it for just the experience, perhaps? For excitement? Wouldn't it be kind of exciting? Or is it really actually about power in order to be someone, in order to be known? I think sometimes it's hard for us to see what's in our own hearts and understand why and how we think about these things. Even if that is not you, one little bit, I think the question of motivation is very relevant for all of us. Our motivation as we connect with the gospel. I wonder how many of us live in a Christianity primarily about me and what it does for me and what I'm saved from. Is it mostly what God has done for you that matters to you personally? How the gospel serves you? Is it, as it so often is, a self-interested Christianity? What will happen to me when I die? How is my relationship with God? It's a, think about how you'd explain the good news to somebody else. How would you explain the gospel? What is the good news of the gospel? How much is the good news of the gospel about you and about me? I certainly, I would default to telling people about how it matters to them personally, about what it could do for them, about the great power of God to restore a relationship and bring new life for them. I would talk about it like that. But we might call that saved from Christianity. Saved from, okay? Now, I need to be really clear. Christianity is about being saved from things, Okay? Through Jesus' once-for-all taking of our place, through his taking our punishment in our place on the cross, we are saved from God's wrath. We don't get what it is that we deserve. We're saved from the punishment that belongs to those who do evil, that belongs to those who do it big style and those who just play around the edges of evil. None of us have a perfect record. All of us have thoughts, attitudes, and acts that aren't what they should be. So real Christianity is about being saved from. And if you don't know tonight whether you are saved from these things, whether you're saved from all the wrong and the punishment that earns for you, if you don't know that, if your story so far ends in a question mark like Simon's story does, you can do something about it tonight. Tonight you can be saved from those things. You just need to put your trust in Jesus that he has dealt 
with this problem and it will change your life and it is tremendously good news for you now if anyone is wanting to talk about that more or to do that tonight uh, you can come find me afterwards and I would love to talk about that with you so real Christianity is saved from Christianity but it's also a saved to Christianity it is about us and how God has rescued us it is about how he's reached out to us and he's made us new. And he's made a way to bring us back from our rebellion back into relationship. But it's also about what we're saved to. Right? We're saved for. About the purpose for which we've been saved for. To glorify God. To bring him honor and praise. To bring him the honor and praise which is rightfully his as the author of creation. As the author of salvation. Does that, does that make any sense to that idea of being saved from, but also being saved to? Maybe that seems a little bit abstract. So let's make it concrete, okay? Saved from Christianity is just about us. It's just about what God's done for us. Saved to Christianity is about this and more. It's about living to see God receive the glory that's rightfully his. And what would that look like? A Christianity that isn't so much self-interested as God-interested just so happens we have a fine example here our fourth story and final story to close Philip's story now think about Philip for a moment with me okay Philip is one of the first deacons appointed in the church as we read about a few weeks back as we learned about a few weeks back now his fellow deacon Stephen as we heard about last week has just been stoned to death for speaking about Jesus stoned to death it's not that somebody has criticized him or said something harsh about him or hurt his feelings it's not just that he's been ostracized or mocked he's been killed he's been killed for what he did and now they're going house to house to find the rest of you and cart you off to prison or worse the future is not looking bright if you are one of Philip's buddies what would self-interest have Philip do right now duck Keep his head down, right? Get out of the limelight. Don't make a fuss. Don't be too in your face. Look at what happens when you're in your face with the gospel. You get killed. That's what happens when you're in your face with the gospel. So keep the noise down. Let's just, let's get away from the heat in Jerusalem, guys. Let's scatter and go into hiding. Let's find somewhere quiet and we can just go about our business. We can enjoy this great salvation that we know about. We can enjoy what we've been saved from. Well, perhaps I could live a, a godly life in Samaria, maybe a very godly life. Uh, maybe I'll do it really well and people will start asking me and I can, you know, quietly on the side without offending anyone, I can just, uh, you know, explain to them the good news. But let's not get carried away. Let's not make this too awkward, shall we? Enjoy what the gospel's done for you, Philip. After all, that's what it's about, isn't it? Just you and Jesus. I'm saved. Praise the Lord. Well, what does Philip do, huh? Back to verse 5. What does he do? The first thing in his calendar when he gets to Samaria? Does he find a job? Settle down? Make some friends? Get involved in some social activities? Take up a sport? The first thing he does is he proclaims the Christ there. He proclaims the Christ. That's... It's not going to keep you undercover, Philip. It's not going to keep you safe and sound. What are you doing? 
You have no sense? You're saved. Enjoy it. Keep your mouth shut. Stay alive so you can enjoy it a bit longer. Surely that's the idea. Praise the Lord, just not too loud because somebody might hear and that would be bad. And it's not just Philip. Look at verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Who's been scattered? Everyone. Everyone apart from the apostles. All of them, it says. And they're all preaching the word wherever they went. It's almost like that Christianity is not just about being saved from, isn't it? It's almost like they were saved to something as well. It's almost like they were saved to share the good news, saved to see other people enjoy this restored relationship too, saved to see God's kingdom advance to Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria, and then onwards to the ends of the earth. It's almost like they're saved to see God glorified more and more for his great salvation as it reaches and spreads throughout the earth, isn't it? Is this your story? If somebody tried to write a plot summary for your life, they tried to take everything that you're doing and everything that you're engaged in and just boil it down to, what are you about? What are you living for? They tried to boil you down to one line. Would it be this? Would it be, how can I see God's kingdom grow? Would it be, how can I see him glorified? Would it be, what can I do? Are you going to be in the back of a cupboard somewhere, keeping a low profile, just enjoying that wonderful salvation, ideally for as long as possible? So often, we can take this easy route of being saved, gloriously saved, and being thankful, very, very thankful, and just keeping our heads down, right? With lots of different ways of rationalizing this, sometimes I, I dress this up as prudence. I'm just biding my time, right? I'm just waiting for the right opportunity. I don't want to push it too hard. I might, I might lose the chance later. I, I, but am I earnestly praying for that opportunity to speak? And then as I walk through my days, am I walking through my days with eyes that are alive to opportunities through my prayers? Am I resolved to take an opportunity when it comes? It's just prudence, I can say. I just, just don't want to push too hard. I just don't want to... But I think so often, that's me just living in this saved from, safe place. Sometimes, sometimes we like to keep our heads down because we're sure it's somebody else's job, aren't we? It's not my gift. It's not my calling. I mean, leave that to the professionals, right? Leave that to the apostles in Jerusalem. We have to leave it to someone. Leave it to the deacons. Let's leave it to the deacons, okay? Because, you know, Stephen, Philip, they got that covered. Or let's leave it to the pastors. We should leave that to the pastors, really. The, the missionaries, we need to leave this task to the missionaries. They're the, they're the gifted, called ones. The apprentices, where's Ross gone? Let's leave it all to the apprentices. They'll sort this out. I'm sure it's somebody else's job. Or at least I'm desperately hoping that's the case. Do, do you ever pray for God to raise up more evangelists? Do you pray very earnestly for God to raise up more evangelists? Do you ever pray for God to send out more workers into the harvest like we're meant to? Do you ever pray for that with slightly suspicious earnestness? Like, please send out somebody else to do this. Um, 
Is it because we're desperately hoping it's not us? Because we really don't want to be the one doing it. Now, there are different giftings and callings. I don't want to undermine that. There genuinely are. Not everyone is an evangelist, and some are called to be evangelists. Absolutely. There are different body parts in this church that are all knit together into the one whole that works together for the advance of the kingdom. Absolutely. Okay, you're not all evangelists, so breathe a sigh of relief. I'm not going to send you all out tonight. But at the same time, we are all called to do the work of an evangelist, like Paul tells Timothy. Do the work of an evangelist. We all share this calling, this common calling. The whole of creation shares this common calling to pursue God's glory with everything we have. Why would we think that doesn't reach to us? Everything, everything in creation is about God's glory. Is to pursue it, right? The, if we don't praise Him, the rocks will cry out. That's what the Bible says. We all have this responsibility and you can see the whole church picking it up here can't you the whole church went about this as they were scattered that's what verse says not just the apostles in Jerusalem and not just the deacons not just the spiritual deacons not just the evangelists the whole church went about this because all Christians share the common calling to make disciples as we go make disciples as we go in life a self-interested save from gospel what does it do it makes us see this as an optional add-on for professionals for keen beans you know, if you want to be like a level two Christian, you can. You can do that, but you don't need to. But a clearer, a fuller, saved to gospel sees us understanding our ultimate purpose in this world with all creation. Our chief end is to glorify God. Sees us understanding we too have a part in God's plan, right? God's unfolding plan that goes from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. That's us there in phase three. My question for you tonight is, what are you saved to? What are you saved to do? How is pursuing God's glory with all your strength and might going to shape your life? How can you make it so that somebody summarizing your being would say, he's about God's glory He's about making disciples. How can that be for you? Let's pray together.